welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Points of View podcast. In this episode, you'll hear me, Jenny Scholick, in conversation with soloist Esteban Hernandez and Corte Ballet member Lonnie Weeks about Jerome Robbins's life and work. Hope you enjoy. So, to the main event tonight, our topic tonight is Jerome Robbins. Um, obviously, we have Program 5, Robbins Ballet and Broadway, happening this evening. Um, I'm going to start off the evening by confessing that I am a total Robbins nerd and giving you all a little overview of his life with particular emphasis on the four ballets that we are doing this week. And then that's going to take about 15, 20 minutes. After that, I'll be joined by soloist Esteban Hernandez and Corte Ballet member Lonnie Weeks to speak a bit about what it's like to be performing Jerome Robbins now, 100 years after his birth. So let's get to it. So as my intro gave away, uh, this year, 2018, is the centennial of Jerome Robbins' birth in 1918. Robbins was the son of two Jewish immigrants from Poland, uh, Harry Rabinowitz and Lena Rips. And so Jerome Robbins was born as Jerome Wilson Rabinowitz in Manhattan in, in 1918. He wasn't largely raised in New York, however. He was mostly raised in New Jersey, where his father owned a corset factory, owned and ran a corset factory. And as a young man, he did attend NYU for a year. He was going to study either chemistry or journalism, neither of which he did, um, before he dropped out in 1936. So a young Jerry, as he was known to friends and family, actually followed his older sister, Sonia, into show business. She was a professional dancer with Irma Duncan and Senya Glucksandor, who were two modern dancers and choreographers based in New York in the period. Duncan was one of the Isadorables, so she was actually adopted by Isadora Duncan, pioneer of American modern dance, and trained in her style. Gleck Sandor was more of a Broadway man, um, but he was also really involved in the Federal Dance Project, which was the dance arm of the New Deal, like the Federal Theater Project. Um, and he worked a lot on Broadway in a sort of theatrical modern dance style. So uh, Jerome Robbins gained an apprenticeship with Gluck Sandor based largely on kind of innate talent, musical and movement talent. And while he was with him from about 1936 to 1940, he trained in ballet and modern dance and in sort of theatrical or Broadway techniques. Uh, that means that although Robbins was absolutely a trained dancer, he his foundation was more so in modern dance than in ballet in his early career. So it's in this period that he's working with Gluck Sandor that Jerry Rabinowitz officially becomes Jerome Robbins. He had played around with a variety of stage names along with his sister, um, but Jerome Robbins starts to stick in this period. And then he also starts to experiment with choreography. Um, he was making work largely in this sort of modern dance milieu. He, his pieces were performed at Camp Tamament, which was an artist retreat in Pennsylvania um, with very sort of progressive leftist leanings and also presented his work at the 92nd Street YMHA, which is still a really important hub for modern dance and for dance education in New York. 
Eventually from there, Robbins made his way to Broadway, where he actually briefly worked with George Balanchine um, when Balanchine choreographed 1940s Keep Off the Grass. Um, for those of you who were here for uh, James Steichen's talk about Serenade a few, year, a few weeks ago, that was one of those ballets that, or sorry, Broadway shows that Balanchine was doing to try to keep his dancers employed during World War II. Um, or it was right before we entered the war. But anyway, it did not really keep his dancers very employed because it closed very, very quickly. But that's when um, Robbins and Balanchine first met one another. And from Broadway, he made his way to the fledgling ballet theater, what we now know of as American Ballet Theater. And it was there at Ballet Theater that Robbins um, had his first really big break as a dancer in the title role of Petrushka, and his first big choreographic hit in Fancy Free, choreographed in 1944. So that officially brings us to the first of the ballets that you'll see tonight if you are attending the show, and if you're not, that you'll hopefully see another time this week. Um, but it's actually the last on our program, so you're going to have to wait. Uh, this ballet, of course, tells the story of three sailors out on a 24-hour shore leave um, and really was evocative of American life as it was in 1944 as World War II dragged on. You get to see these three sailors. You get to see their relationships to one another and to the women who they meet um, and really get a sense for who they each are in the course of this ballet, which um, stager Jean-Pierre Froelich, who's been here all week, says is really more of a play than it is a ballet. So Robbins choreographed this work on himself and on his friends in ballet theater. They worked on it while they were touring the country by train, so when the train would stop for the night, they'd work on this ballet. His notes really copiously um, track the process of creating this work. And, you know, he was really young. There's a way in which this is really a, a ballet about him and about his friends, and that comes through in the characters of the sailors. Um, and we can ask Lonnie and Esteban a bit about that later because they are doing two of these parts. Uh, in addition to being a collaboration with his friends and his fellow dancers, this was also Robbins's first collaboration with composer Leonard Bernstein. Um, and the first of many. So in terms of ballets, together they went on to make ballets like Facsimile, Age of Anxiety, The Dybbuk, and then of course they worked incredibly famously together on Broadway in pieces like West Side Story. But that's really jumping ahead quite a bit. So Fancy Free was such a big hit that Broadway producers approached Robbins and Bernstein and said, hey, maybe we could make a musical out of this. And they did. And so On the Town premiered a couple years later and was an equally big hit, which really made Robbins, sort of positioned Robbins as this American choreographer par excellence by the end of the 1940s. So everything is going along really well, chugging along in Robbins' life. He's doing famously but was not entirely happy um, at ballet theater and with his work on Broadway. And so in 1948, he decided to try to cast his lot with um, New York City Ballet, which was just barely, barely, barely starting with Lincoln Kirstein and George Balanchine. Um, Kirstein and Balanchine, of course, had been working on a variety of projects since 1933, but New York City Ballet, as we now know it, and with that name, only came about in 48. And so right about that time, um, 
Robin sent them a letter and asked if he could join them. He'd admired Balanchine for a long time, as I'd mentioned, had worked with him briefly in 1940. Um, they had had a, a conversation about choreography on a ferry to Nantucket. I don't know why they were going to Nantucket. That is not in my range of knowledge, but they were, both of them, and they chit-chatted, and um, Robin said that that was an incredibly impactful conversation for him about what choreography could or should be. And so he wrote them and said, can I please join? And they said, yes, please do come join us. Um, I think Kirstein in particular was really interested in having Robbins on board. They made him an, uh, the associate artistic director. And I think that's because Kirstein was really interested in New York City Ballet being an American ballet company. And of all the wonderful, brilliant things that Balanchine was in 1948, he was not an American, right? He was a Russian defector in many ways. So I think he really wanted this American kid on board to really sort of shore up the American credentials of New York City Ballet. And that's all well and good, but there was one thing that was going to sort of mar Robbins's ability to be that American choreographer, which was his association with the Communist Party USA. So in this period, of course, it was really quite common for writers, dancers, artists, intellectuals to be part of the Communist Party. It was part of a much broader uh, popular front sort of leftist political movement and particularly for Jewish writers, intellectuals, dancers, choreographers, painters, you name it, to be a member of the party. Pretty much everyone in Robbins' life was, uh, including his sister Sonia. Um, that said, his association with the party was born out from more than just mere proximity. He really did believe in progressive politics quite deeply. He was really invested in the Communist Party's promise to advance the cause of African American and Jewish citizens. He attended meetings. He hosted meetings. He went to conferences. He made several uh, comments to newspapers along the lines of dancers and dance as a field needing to become more politically and socially conscious. So at age 25, 1943, right, kind of as he's choreographing Fancy Free and as the U.S. is embroiled in World War II, he did officially join the Communist Party. However, uh, rising tensions with the Soviet Union in the late 40s really soured Americans and the government in particular on the party. Um, and it was, you know, considered to be antithetical to American interests more broadly, giving rise to what we sort of popularly know as McCarthyism. And it was right as Robbins was joining New York City Ballet that it started to be become clear that this membership, which he had relinquished somewhere between 1946 and 1947, was going to become a problem for him. Um, and it really came to bear beginning in 1950 when television host and gossip columnist Ed Sullivan would cancel Robbins' appearance on Toast of the Town due to Robbins' party connections. Supposedly, Sullivan made an offer that he would tell the public that the appearance was canceled due to an inability to get the music rights if Robbins agreed to talk to the FBI. If Robbins did not agree to talk to the FBI, Sullivan was going to say not only was Robbins a party member, but he was gay. And it's that second one that was punishable by jail time in 1950. So Robbins agreed to talk to the FBI. And he hoped that that was going to be the end of it. 
Unfortunately, it wasn't. And in 1951, a couple months before The Cage premiered, Sullivan published an open letter to the FBI and the Philadelphia Inquirer suggesting that the FBI and the House Un-American Activities Committee subpoena Jerome Robbins so that he would tell them about the, quote, conspirators who hide behind the music racks, ballet bars, and musical comedy billing. So it's in that moment, right, 1951, a couple months before, that Robbins is working on the cage. So this ballet, it really made kind of a ruckus when it premiered. It featured his ex-fiancee, Nora Kay, as a sort of man-eating cross between an Amazon and a praying mantis, and depicts a fairly grim, one could say, idea of both female sexuality and social dynamics. Um, you know, we, fo we follow the novice as she's born, as she falls in love or lust very briefly with a man or two, and then kills him at the sort of behest of both instinct and tribal mandate. Um, in many ways, it's a reworking of Giselle Act Two. So set to Stravinsky, this ballet, I think, is making not only a statement perhaps about how Robbins was feeling about society in a way in 1951, um, but also about his place in New York City Ballet. Up till now, really, only Balanchine was allowed to choreograph to Stravinsky at City Ballet, and with this piece, Robin sort of enters himself into that dialogue. Unfortunately, uh, the 1951 letter in the Inquirer set off a chain of events that kind of like the chain of events the men set off in the cage cannot be stopped or could not be stopped. And so in 1953, in May of 1953, Robbins finds himself in the hot seat in front of the House on american Activities Committee where he did testify and he did name eight previously unidentified party members to the committee. And that was a decision that would really haunt him for the rest of his life and plays out in a variety of ways throughout his biography. So from there, we're going to speed up time a little bit because our four pieces that we have on the program tonight kind of jump from the 50s to the 70s, so I am going to jump a little bit. Um, Robbins did spend a good amount of the rest of the 1950s working with New York City Ballet. Between 1951 and 1956, he choreographed some really seminal works, including Afternoon of a Fawn and the concert. Um, but in 1956, his muse there and Balanchine's wife, Tanaquil Leclerc, contracted polio during a tour in Europe and was paralyzed from the waist down, ending her dance career. And that was really, obviously, very hard on her and on Balanchine, but also hard on Robbins. And he had a really hard time coming back to the company after that. So he really left for several years. He uh, worked on Broadway. That's when he made West Side Story. And he formed his own touring company called Ballets USA. Um, and it was on one of these Ballets USA tours that he found himself in Iceland and met a young uh, boy who is a dancer who he managed to secure a scholarship to the School of American Ballet for and who would grow up to be a major principal dancer and interpreter of Robbins's roles and then end up here in San Francisco as the artistic director of our company because that boy in Iceland was Helgi Thomason. So Robbins returned to New York City Ballet in 1969 with Dances at a Gathering set to Chopin, perhaps his most... Um, you know, arguably the masterpiece of his life, uh, last done by San Francisco Ballet in 2016. 
And from then on, he did pretty much work with New York City Ballet on and off with a few leaves of absence until his death in 1998. In 1976, he made Other Dances, which is the third ballet we'll talk about a little bit tonight, for two incredibly famous Russian defectors, Mikhail Baryshnikov and Natalia Makarova. Um, This ballet, also set to Chopin, seems in a way kind of an outtake from Dances at a Gathering, or as I like to call it, Other Dances That I Didn't Have Time For in Dances at a Gathering. Um, After its premiere, Robbins did take this ballet into New York City Ballet's repertoire, and Helgi Thomason and Patricia McBride, pictured here, um, were some of the most frequent interpreters of the role. Moving forward a bit, the final ballet on our program was made just a few years later in 1979, again for Baryshnikov, who by then had come to dance at New York City Ballet, and for Patricia McBride. And Opus 19, The Dreamer, is like Fancy Free, where we sort of started this story about Robbins. One of his, if not kind of most autobiographical ballets, then at least one of his ballets that is most sort of imbued with a sense of self or his psyche. Um, Set to Prokofiev's violin concerto, Opus 19, it's got this sort of moody, emotional feel and... Brizhnikov said about it that the dreamer is, quote, a bit of an outsider, a bit of a loner, a bit of a thinking man. There's a bit of action, a bit of unrealized romance, which is very much Jerry's life. And I think you'll see in the four ballets this evening, right, the sense that his life does become embedded in these works and that this interest in a sense of community, community left behind, the connections between people come through in... um, four really different ways, but that there is this theme that runs throughout these four ballets. So Robbins continued to choreograph until about 1997, largely for New York City Ballet, and of course his work remains in the repertoires of companies around the world, and not least in ours. So with that said, I would love to talk about what it is like to still be doing these works, you know, not quite a hundred years, but 75, 60, 40 years after the fact. So with that, I'd like to introduce Esteban Hernandez, who joined San Francisco Ballet in 2013 and was promoted to soloist last year. And Lonnie Weeks, Corps de Ballet member, who joined the Corps in 2010. Hello. Hi. Hi. Welcome, both of you. Hello. (laughs) So to get started, we've just heard a bit about Robbins in the past, and I think what I would really like to talk about with you guys is Robbins today, right? What it's like to be performing these works and working on these works. So just to start, easy, easy softball question, can you tell us which Robbins works you're doing this week? Um, This week, I'm going to be performing The First Intruder in the Cage, And I also performed The Third Sailor in Fancy Free, also known as The Rumba Boy. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm only involved in Fancy Free, and I'm the first sailor, uh, the one that jumps into the split. (laughs) The flashy show-off sailor, the one made on on Harold Lang. And you've got Jerry's part. Yes. I didn't know that at first, actually. (laughs) It wasn't until after I learned the role that somebody mentioned that it was Jerry's part. So that makes it pretty special. 
So for both of you, is this your first time dancing in a Robbins ballet or have you worked on other Robbins rep in the past? Um, this is only my second uh, Robbins ballet that I get to perform. Uh, my first one was actually my first year in the company when I, uh, we were doing um, glass pieces. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of my first... Uh, uh, hands-on kind of encounter with his choreography. Um, later on, I learned uh, the Brick Boy in uh, Dances at a Gathering, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I, I injured myself. I never got to perform it. Uh, so I'm, I'm really glad that I got to, to be a part of Fancy Free this time around because uh, it, it's, it's been an, a really great experience. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, for me as well, my first experience dancing Robins was Glass Pieces, I think it was a few years before you, but um, everyone who's involved in that ballet has nothing but good things to say about it. It's such a joy to dance, and it's super tribal. Um, I'm not sure when it was choreographed, but it's, in may- I think in the 70s maybe, but it's also <laughs> Philip Glass music, which is incredible. Yeah. yeah. And really different than Fancy Free. Yes, super different. Right? You get the full range of Robbins' work. So can you tell us a little bit about what it's like, what it was like learning maybe Fancy Free to start with, right? Fancy Free and the Cage were set by Jean-Pierre Froelich Mm. from New York City Ballet this year. But what is the process like for you guys in the studio? How do you start? Um, Well... Uh, at the at the very start, it was very much just like about learning the movement, the steps, and then kind of understanding the the characters. I feel like JP was was just so good at um, giving you kind of the right feel, the right idea of what uh, each uh, sailor had to be like, and it was also he he was very specific about making each sailor kind of its own person as it, you know how it is in 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 real life so i really uh, uh, i really appreciated his approach to it because it it also gives you the freedom to kind of take what he said and interpret it in your own kind of way uh so really i i just had a great time uh working with him and and really developing the the roles mm-hmm. yeah yeah for me um there was a bit of a challenge learning Fancy Free halfway through the process because originally I was cast to learn the second sailor. So he's the sailor who is more of the carefree, happy-go-lucky, innocent one. And after JP taught us the whole ballet and he kind of got to know our personalities better, he kind of was like, you know what, Lonnie, now that I, I know you... I don't think you are the the, the innocent one. <laughs> I he's like I think you have a little bit of a fire in you, and I want to switch you to the third sailor, which is um, which is really cool. I really love that role, but it was just hard to kind of switch gears halfway through um, and try and learn a whole new role. Um, but somehow it happened. You managed. You were out there last night, both of you, looking great. Thank you. Um, So you've hinted at this a little bit, right, that the three sailors have three really different personalities. They're coming from sort of different places. For you, as you work on a part like that, right, that has this strong character, what do you... 
what do you do to get into that space? Like, do you have a whole backstory for this person? Is it really just in the movement? What, what do you well, do to prepare? To start off with, um, JP gave us a few pages with Robin's notes about the ballet and what each sailor, sh each personality, what they should have, and a little bit on their backstory. So that was one way to start off. Um, and then for me, after reading that piece of paper, I also would think back on all the times that I watched On the Town, because I was a really, really big fan of just Gene Kelly in general as a kid, but I especially loved watching On the Town. Um, I even would make my family sit down and watch me perform some of those songs. <laughs> Which, Should I be um, worried about you holding the microphone? And <laughs> Thank gonna... God I don't think it ended up on video anywhere. Um, but yeah, I also just kind of would watch the movie and watch Gene Kelly to get into character. Great. Yeah, um, like Lonnie said, uh, JP gave us all this information and all these uh, notes. He, he, I think even there was a fragment of the letter that he mm -hmm. wrote to uh, Bernstein yeah. um, uh, with the idea and what, what he wanted out of it. And I really feel like that gives you kind of a, a very clear idea and notion of what each character should be like. Uh, he also spoke a lot about, well, JP used to dance the sailor that I, that I, that I yeah, perform. So that was, His that was really, even in the score yeah. actually. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because sometimes like he'll tell uh, the pianist, he'll be like, oh, let's take it from where JP bows, or <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So it, it was really amazing to get to work on on the same part that, that he he performed. And, and in a way, just uh, looking at his body language and how he would uh, show things was really just really useful and helpful. You could take, you, 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 I got to understand what he wanted out of uh, out of me um, by by looking at him and really mm -hmm. uh, listening and and then uh, after, once you get comfortable with the with the movement and, and the idea of it yeah it helps to to have a little bit of a, a an internal dialogue and a kind of like um, like a backstory you know for example he was like he he would uh, randomly come up to us and be like okay what what did you see over there uh, you pointed that way what, what are you looking at and, you know I'd be like oh, yeah, I saw the empire needs to have like yeah. a dialogue or a meaning behind it. Yeah, and uh, and for example, sometimes you'd be like, "Where are you, where, where are you from? Where's your character from?" And you would have to kind of like think on the spot, and then eventually use that uh, consistently and kind of create a backstory from from that. Mm -hmm. So it, it really was a, a really great experience because you we we don't get that kind. Of, it was it was more more like a working on a play yeah. rather than a than a ballet. There's, um, you know, one of the amazing things about ballet, right, is that you learn things from teachers who learned things from their teachers or right. from the, right, that there's this lineage that gets passed down from one person to another. And, of course, JP worked really closely with Robbins. And there's, uh, we had an event last night, and he said, someone said to me that I look just like Jerry when I'm, you know, teaching things. But hearing you say that, there's this great article in Dance Magazine this month uh, by Peter Bowl about working with Jerome Robbins, and he said that Robbins would stop him and say, what did you have for breakfast yeah. this morning? And he would say, I, I had a, an egg McMuffin, I'm sorry. And he'd go, no, 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 what did your character have for breakfast this morning? That's what Yeah, it was know. cool to like hear JP 
bring out these little isms that Jerry would say. You know, he would be like, you know, well, Jerry would always say, just play the scene, baby. Just play the scene. Yeah, yeah, it, it was really amazing because he would say sometimes it, it was it was mostly like a me- method acting, mm-hmm. and and there'd be days where uh, he he shared with us that uh, Jerry would go and tell one dancer uh, to do something different without telling the rest of them, so he he could see their uh, genuine reactions, you know, mm-hmm. to to a situation that's kind of like a. Uh, un- unusual, unrehearsed, unplanned, and and I think that's really the the most uh, important thing in, in something like Fancy Free. You know, this kind of work is to make it to make it seem seem real, to to make it seem spontaneous. Yeah, know when to be a dancer and know when to be just a real person walking down the street in New York City. Yeah. So that brings me a little bit to. A question. There may not be an answer to this question. I'll just preface with that. But, you know, one of the things that is so cool about Fancy Free is that Robbins choreographed it on himself and on his friends, right? There is this sense of these are real people in a way, right, who are in this ballet. And I wondered if there's anything in particular about the choreography or about this process of learning it that made you feel like you learned something new about who Robbins was or who some of these people who it was made on were. Anything embedded in there? As I said, there may not be an answer to that question. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know. I, have, I haven't... I don't think I've... I think I'm still pretty new to the ballets. You know, last night was both of our first times performing it. So who knows what we might discover as we do the ballet more and more and more as the nights go on. Yeah, I, um, I don't know. For me... Uh, knowing that it was kind of like one of his first ex- uh, his first experience mm-hmm. choreographing really uh, anything, and then to to see the other ballets in in the program and kind of see uh, different aspects and different sides of of him himself. That that's that's mostly what what's interesting about it, and what I've enjoyed about having a kind of like a personal experience with the with the piece uh, was really just. Being able to see and understand his range, you know, I, I think this program does a does really uh, great. It, it it really shows the range that that he had. That the from something like Fancy Free to Opus 19 to other other dances mm-hmm. or even the Cage, you, you really see who he was. And and, and so I, I I don't know. It's just been a really uh, great way and yeah, great way to to. To learn more about him. Yeah, it really does show. This program shows Robbins and not all of his facets, but four very, very different facets, which is amazing. So I want to um, ask Lonnie for a minute. Can you tell us a little bit about the cage? You have this like brief but amazing moment yeah. in it. Well, I went into that first rehearsal the first day knowing nothing about the cage. <laughs> Maybe I had seen a picture once upon a time, but I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, so I'm the first intruder. Um, and I, I have a very, it's a very small role, but it's very intense. And um, I don't have much of a relationship with the novice, like the second intruder does. I believe that the second intruder, um, the novice and him do have a relationship. I think they share some sort of romantic feelings towards each other. 
um, you'll even see them at one point sort of stand apart from each other and open their mouths like they're screaming in agony that they know that this isn't going to end pretty. Um, so I don't share that deep connection with the novice. Um, pretty much as soon as I come on, she tries and rip, tries to rip my head off. Um, there's, it's lots of rolling around on the floor. She stabs me and in, in the end she ends up tearing my head off and I, and I die. <laughs> Lovely. In a nutshell, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can understand why maybe it caused kind of uh, some drama when it first premiered. Yeah. Uh, in the fi- in, in 1951. 1951. 1951, yeah. So very uh, different than some of the other ballets that were being performed in the period. I mean, that said, there was a lot of weird weird stuff happening in, in art in the 1950s more than maybe it gets credit for. But yeah, you know, it's, it's this like tiny little jewel of a ballet. It was inspired by, um, the, the look of the novice was apparently inspired by Robin saw Nora Kay come out of the shower with wet hair. And that's the, the novice versus all the other, all the other women. Um, it has such, a fascinating sets and costumes that are happening not sets it's got a sort of piece but the costumes are something else did that change like when it got on stage the first time with the hair and the costumes and your costume did that change your approach at all everything feels much smaller than i imagined it makes everything feel much more intimate the lights are turned really down really down low and then the set, you're you're like, is that a, is that a spider web? Hmm. Is that is that a cage? Like, what what is that? What so, is the cage? So yeah. for me, what changed going from the studio in onto the stage is everything felt much more close and small and intimate. You, you know, speaking about the set, mm-hmm. um, I was told uh, just a couple of days the first day that we had a, a stage call. I'm not involved in the cage, but I was talking with one of the dancers who plays the novice that uh, JP was telling her that the set was kind of like a improvised mm-hmm. a, bit, a bit, you know, where it was a, one of those things where they didn't have enough, enough, enough money or, or ran out of money too soon. And then they were like, so what do we do? He was like, okay, let's go get some ropes and kind of like make it up, <laughs> make it up as we, uh, as we went. So I thought that was really interesting because it, it, you know, it, it really, it yeah, it, it really gives you that kind of, um, um yeah, I'd heard that he, they, uh, they were doing a rehearsal, a stage rehearsal, and the crew had brought down the, yeah. you know, all that that lives up there that I can't name right now. <laughs> so it was all down. They were hanging lights and whatnot. Yeah. And he saw it and was like, that's it. Yeah. Just Perfect. use that. Yeah. We'll, just, we'll <laughs> exactly. just do that to this ballet. So, yeah. yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, pretty amazing. So um, one more sort of big picture one about Robbins. You know, Robbins and Balanchine both spent a huge amount of time at New York City Ballet, of course, mm. both associate, you know, artistic director, ballet master in chief, et cetera. Um, what makes Robbins's works distinct from those of other choreographers, if you can put your finger on it in any way, different from a Balanchine or different from some of the other works we do here? Actually, me and Espan kind of were discussing this before, and it's hard to nail that one down because each of Robinson's ballets are so different from each other. Mm-hmm. You know, like Fancy Free is a Broadway show, and then Opus 19, the girls are in point shoes and beautiful dresses. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
I don't know, if, if I were to try and compare uh, Robbins to Balanchine, you, you can definitely see that they both had a kind of influence on, on, on each other. But uh, I think that Robbins' work has, uh, he, you, you can tell that he really invested uh, him himself. He put a little bit of, like, like what you were saying earlier, so in a way it has like a very human feel to it. He's very good at creating this kind of like atmosphere on, on the stage, this kind of uh, mood or a feeling that kind of like uh, drags you in. No matter what kind of uh, uh, ballet he is, yeah, he did have quite, quite a range. Uh, um, but like for example, all, all of his ballets, uh, his like Chopin ballets, like uh, dances at a gathering, other dances uh, in the night, they all have this very kind of moody feel to them, where it's kind of like you can't look away. Yeah, you get um, sucked in. Yeah, and 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 even his uh, uh, stronger, more abstract works like the Cage, I feel like they still have that kind of feel to them. I feel like Balanchine was very good at interpreting stories and, and kind of a, a more intellectual approach to uh, choreography. Uh, but Robbins, to me, feels somewhat, so, somehow more human, more humane, more uh, uh, real. You can mm -hmm. tell that there was... They're, like, real, uh, they're people on yeah, stage, not really, dancers. It, it, right? yeah. I would say something that both Balanchine and Robbins shared is they both had a really wonderful talent for choreographing choreography for the principals as well as the corps de ballet. I think some choreographers are stronger at choreographing one or the other, mm -hmm. but I think you'll see that both are equally well well done. Yeah, it's about there's this balance to the yeah, structure. Especially in a ballet like Glass Pieces, the mm -hmm. core work in that ballet is phenomenal. It is. It's amazing. I love that ballet. So, you know, as we've said, Robbins was still dancing when he began choreographing. He continued dancing well into the 1950s. We see several choreographers now who are starting their choreography careers while dancing. Um, two coming up in our Unbound Festival, Miles Thatcher and Justin Peck. Right. You guys think about choreography at all. Is that something you're interested in as you're at this phase in your dance career? For me, the opportunity just hasn't presented itself. I've, I've been so busy learning other people's choreography. My head is filled with other people's choreography. I feel like I just haven't been presented with the opportunity, so I don't, I don't really know if that's a muscle I have to flex or not. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Well, uh, I, I think it's uh, a little bit like what Lonnie says, but it's also hard not to be kind of inspired and influenced by all the choreographers that we, that we work with. Uh, to try and kind of like come up with your own uh, own things it's it's not something that i have really uh thought about or developed or had the time uh to do but it's definitely something that would interest me maybe in the future um you know to kind of put, put together like all the sort of experiences and kind of uh, to me i see it kind of like a collection of of all the different choreographers and all the different experiences with a touch of yourself, you know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's hard to, uh, some, someone said that there, there's no such thing as anything original, but there, there is, there are, uh, there is, uh, something that's uh, genuine, you know? And so I feel like it's not about coming up with new steps or new, uh, ideas necessarily, but it's, uh, doing so in a very genuine way. And so that's kind of the aspect of, uh, of choreography that interests me to see what I what I could come up 
mm-hmm. what you might in that way. Yeah. Maybe you both just need a really long tour by train around <laughs> America for a little time and space <laughs> to start thinking about what your first works are going to be. Maybe that's just the... provide the ticket. <laughs> I do like traveling by train. Um, so one one last question while we're on the topic of right. the number of choreographers you guys get to work with in this company before we wrap up. We have Unbound coming up. Um, this week, we're getting to see a bit about ballet's recent past. And in a couple of weeks, you're going to get to see quite a bit about ballet's present and perhaps a bit of where it's going. So mm. do you mind telling us just a little bit about which choreographers you're working with and what you're really looking forward to about that festival? Mm. So actually, me and Esteban are working with the same, same choreographers. Um <laughs> A piece that I'm particularly excited about is the new Christopher Wielden piece because mm-hmm. I um, I'm fortunate enough to have a pretty cool solo in that ballet, so that I'm excited about. I'm also pretty excited about the new Trey McIntyre ballet. I think it'll be really, really great. Yeah, those are fun ones. Yeah, uh, like like Lonnie said, we're we're in the same group. Uh, it was the company was split into three different right. groups. Uh, each of us gets uh, four different choreographers. Uh, yeah, Christopher Wielden, Trey McIntyre, Dwight Roden, and Stanton Welsh. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm I'm just excited about this uh, f- festival and to see what the other groups have gotten up to, as well as the, the stuff that we, uh, as well as like showing what we got up to uh, to, to everybody else. Uh, but it's it, it was it, it was a really interesting experience because although uh, it was all n- new stuff, it was all fairly different from mm-hmm. from itself. And the, the ideas that uh, each choreographer brought to it were were, were interesting. I, I, I found uh, like the Stanton Welsh piece is very much classical and very much uh, um, focused on on the the joy of dancing. Uh, as he 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 talked to us about it one day. Because uh, we were like, do, you know, do you have any kind of story behind it? He said, it's all about the joy of dancing, you know, about uh, each one of you and what originally brought you to dance and what made you want to dance. And so th- it's uh, it, things like that or uh, as compared to something the, like... The, the Dwight Roden, which is more about relationships with other people, whether happy or sad right. or romantic or tumultuous. Yeah. So I feel like uh, we we had quite a bit of a uh, of range in our uh in our, in our choreographers. So yeah, I'm pretty yeah, we excited. had definitely had a lot to play with. <laughs> it was an exciting summer and it's going to be an exciting next month as they all kind of show back up in San Francisco as soon as we close this program. Mm-hmm. Super exciting. So Thank you, Lonnie yeah. and Esteban. Thank you so wonderful. much. Thank you, thank you thank all you of you for, for being here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Points of View podcast. For other podcasts and audience engagement programming, check out sfballet.org slash explore.